So today the Travelling Food Podcast and myself on my bicycle has had the pleasure of coming to Chris Beckett's house. Um, welcome Chris. Thank you very much Emma, it's lovely to see you here. And we are actually, is it in between Tooting and Shetland? Is that yeah, right? we're basically Tooting Beck, that's what we call ourselves here. The, the tube station is Tooting Beck yes, on yes. the nearest tube. Now this area is actually called Thursdown. Okay. Sadiq Khan lives down the road here and it's a really nice area. Okay, do you see yeah. him very often? Yeah, he, he jogs past our front door virtually every day. Oh, does he? Yeah, 8 do o'clock in the morning, I oh know, 7 o'clock in the morning's jogging and at 8 o'clock in the morning he's going off to work. Something like that, not every day, but most days. You'll have yeah. to get him to stop to and come in and <laughs> look at Isai's paintings and you can sell a few I have invited books. him to a couple of things, you know, just dropped through his letterbox. <laughs> but one was a drinks party and one was an art show, but he didn't come to either. Oh, well, well so, maybe uh, he'll hear He's a busy man. Yes, he is. Perhaps he'll hear this podcast and think again right, as he realises you're just down the road. <laughs> yeah, indeed. This is the Travelling Through Podcast. I'm your host, Emma, and today's guest is Chris Beckett, poet, translator, and huge supporter of Travelling Through. Today we'll talk about poetry, haiku, Ethiopia, Japan, and everything else in between. It's so nice. We're sitting in Izao's, your partner's, gallery. No, it's a studio. Oh, sorry, studio. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a gallery because there are lots of paintings on the wall, but it's actually just his studio. studio. And although this is beautiful, it's also a little bit sad that I'm not sitting in your garden, which is equally so lovely, Um, a mix of kind of Japanese theme and Yeah, there's sort of like south of France, the olive tree, the mimosa, there's sort of English apples and roses. And then at the end of the garden, it's all sort of Japanese, yes. Yeah. If you can see the little red stone by the pond, that's a sort of mini red mount. Fuji, and then there's a viewing platform where you're meant to sit cross legged and have tea. Yes, when the Um, foxes aren't there. But there are foxes, (laughs) uh, which you see normally, so. It needs a good brush down before (laughs) you. Well, they do their business on it, so (laughs) so it's not really this place one wants to spend much time. You just just imagine yourself as a signal. But you know, the funniest thing is that the fox, of course, is Kitsune in yes. Japanese is a very popular animal and symbol of prosperity and good luck. Oh, so, so you, you uh, want some Also of naughtiness. Also of sort of, I think of naughtiness, of yes. the sort of cunning, like yes. it is here. I yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but it's a lovely, peaceful spot and I can imagine in the summer it was yeah, suitable it's, it's to be. absolutely beautiful, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me here where we can That's be somewhere calm and quiet as well and I was trying to remember when we first met and all I do remember in Italy was when I opened the bookshop the first people to basically stream through the door were poets and I was completely unprepared for that Mm. I didn't have much poetry I don't think actually I even had any poetry poetry. (laughs) gosh that's but you were all so enthusiastic and yeah. and I, I very quickly realised how important it was to open the doors and have evenings for poetry. Well, I heard about travelling through from Sunny Otolov. Sunny Otolov, of course. That's how I, I remember yeah. hearing about this wonderful small travel bookshop on Lower Marsh. And so I went off to have a look and bought a few books. And then the next time I thought, oh, I should ask if I can have an event here or something because I heard from Tammy that you were having events in your wonderful little basement cafe. Yes, so. yeah, that's right, we did. And we had winter poetry uh, workshops there and yeah. all sorts of things. But for you, when you did have an event, for me, it was one of the key events of the five years because yeah. for me, it brought London community together with Ethiopian community. And mm. it was something I'd always envisioned how we brought communities together to learn yeah. about each other. Yeah. And for me, that was one of those 
moments which made me smile and made me this is why I was yeah. this is why I'm doing this. <laughs> it was a very successful thing. It's the first time we'd actually I mean just to give you a bit of background, I grew up in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. I spent about four or five years four years maybe there when I was a very impressionable age. Yeah. Uh, and I was sent away to boarding schools during it because I'd got a sort of malaria, whooping cough stuff and my parents just thought, well, he's a bit sickly, he'd be better off um, in England. Of course that made Ethiopia this sort of Garden of Eden for me, and you know that's still how I feel about Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. um, that's a sort of rose-tinted and rather unrealistic appreciation of it, but it is very, very beautiful. And I wanted to start writing about it, and I had written about it already, but I wanted to get more knowledge about it because I hadn't yeah. really been there since I was a child. Right. So we went with Isao in 2007, yeah. and then I started getting really interested in meeting Ethiopians, whether they be there or here. Oh, I see. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, shall I tell the story about what happened? Yes, please because do. Because well, it was really interesting. When we were in Ethiopia, I went to the British Council, and I said, listen, I'm looking for Ethiopian poets. Oh, we don't know any Ethiopian poets, they said. We're here to disseminate English culture. And I thought, well, you tosspots, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <So> typical. <laughs> there was a woman standing a little way away in the British Council there in the office and, and she said oh she was an Ethiopian lady and she said oh um uh, would you like to meet Ethiopian women poets and I said well absolutely of course mm. I would love to anyway so she introduced me to a couple of really lovely women poets and one of them I was having a coffee with and I said listen my Amharic is just really no good mm -hmm. do you know if there's because I'd looked already for Ethiopian poetry in translation I couldn't find any because mm -hmm. I wanted to write about Ethiopia, but I wanted to write in an Ethiopian way. Right. I wanted to be influenced by the way that Ethiopians write poetry. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find any, or couldn't find very little in translation. So she said, well, you've got to understand, Chris, we suffer. And I said, what do you mean, we suffer? And she was laughing. She said, you know, we suffer from never having been colonized. <laughs> I said, well, that's a bit of a controversial thing to say. Yes, yes. Her name was Budala, a lovely lady. And, and she said, well, you know, think about it, Chris. Nobody's sponsoring us. Nobody is giving us scholarships to come to universities in America or in, or in England or yeah, Germany yeah. or wherever. So I understood what she meant. Anyway, so she pointed me towards the fact that basically I wasn't going to find the translation. So if I wanted to read Ethiopian poetry, I was going to have to translate it myself, right, right. which meant I had to go away and learn Amharic seriously. Okay, yes. So I went to SOAS for a year or two, yes. did that, and then started translating and trying to meet poets who I could work with. Yes. Yeah, what happened was that there was the, the, the poet laureate of the Ethiopia was a guy called Sagai Gebrenedin, mm -hmm. and so there are poems of his in, in the anthology. Okay, um, and which we'll he, come on to, anyway. And I looked on the internet for him, and mm -hmm. I found a couple of poems that he'd written in English, because mm -hmm. he was also writing in English, but I wanted to read some more of his poems, I couldn't find anywhere to get them. So I went online and I found a website which said it was dedicated to him. Right. What I didn't understand, that it wasn't him, it was another person with the same name. But anyway, the guy running that website has become my best friend, Alimun Sebajer. Oh, yes. There was another guy called Sergei Gebremedin, who was a poet as well, yes. but who was put in prison for being an opposition campaigner mm -hmm. and uh, has never been seen since, and that's like 30 years ago or yeah. something. So um, anyway, from Alimu I got Sergei's, the poet laureate, yes, <laughs> Sergei's, yes address in America because he was in America and I wrote to him but he died before writing back he oh died no. but the good thing for me was that there was this big memorial service for him in the Irish Centre 
in Camden Town. Mm -hmm. 200, probably 300 Ethiopian, you know, Ethiopian Londoners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you met them all at once, I suddenly. I met everybody. <laughs> and I was asked to read uh, one of Sege's poems in, in English, and that, which I did, called, the, called Nile, which is a wonderful, angry poem. Mm -hmm. And then basically I've taken it from there because I met so many people there, and principally Alimu. Right, you know, because right. Alimu has been my conduit. Everything I've done, I've checked with Alimu, yeah, which yeah. is really important because yeah. my, my Amharic is okay. I can't speak it that well, but I can read and write. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing about translation is idiom. Mm -hmm. You know, you can understand each individual word, but if you don't understand the idiom, I mean, there are so many idioms which mean not what the words literally mean. Yes, uh, yes. And poetry just takes that to the nth degree. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then poetry leaves lots of things out because it's leaving things to your imagination. Of course. Um, so it's very difficult to, as a, a foreigner, mm -hmm. uh, I think there's only one or two people I know whose Amharic is good enough mm. to read Amharic poetry without asking for help. And I ask for help from Alimo, I ask for help from the poet. Then when Karkanet asked me, Mm -hmm. to put a, an anthology together. That's that the publishing, the publishing house, yeah. Karkinet is a big poetry publisher mm -hmm. in the UK, yeah. And they publish my own collection, but they also asked me if I was interested in putting together an anthology, mm -hmm. and I said, oh my God, that's incredible, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's about four years ago or something, so it's been a, a big labour of love. A four-year <laughs> project. <laughs> yeah, together with Alimu and, yeah. and others, yeah. lots of other people have helped. And of course, I've found various stuff in English, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. a few of the, the folk poems especially. But even the translations I found already yeah. needed work because they're not a poet's translation. Right. So they translate maybe the literal meaning of a poem, but they don't get the atmosphere. Yes, and yes. so you, you have to always go back to the original and then just see how it feels and then look at it again in English. Well, that's the difference between a, a literal and a poetic translation for me anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The whole thing about translation I find is, is a fascinating topic really mm. and, and we've talked about it with the traveling through the book club too because we've read a lot of books um, in translation, books in yeah, translation books. and this whole idea of when you translate are you losing the meaning and, and well you're traveling aren't you when you translate yes, yes. i mean translate is a type of tra uh, traveling because yes. you're having to sort of visit Mm. Uh, the place where the poem or the, the book is set. Yes. And yes. that means that you have to understand that place. I yes, mean, the, yes. the language is just really a sort of tip of the iceberg in a way. Yeah. Because it's the whole cultural, geographic, uh, humanitarian situation sure. um, in that place yes, that is coming yes. through the language. Yes. yes. Um, so it's, it's one of the most fascinating things. And, and when we had that Ethiopian poetry evening, poetry mm -hmm. and music, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was music too. Yes. I think Hymenot. Yes. Did Hymenot play? Yeah. She did. Uh, amazing. Uh, she's fantastic. Absolutely yeah, Hymenot In fact, we should put a, link, oh, put a link to her music. Yeah, there, do, because she's amazing. Too. She's doing great things. I've asked her to perform a couple of times with me at other things, but she's too busy now and too expensive. Oh, no, that's <laughs> no good at all. That's she's succeeding, which is brilliant. Yes. Yeah. She's such a good musician and such a good presenter of Ethiopian culture. But that was a lovely evening we had. I think we had Abdi Bardon as well, who is actually a Somali. Yes, that's right. Who has spent yeah. a lot of time in Ethiopia. Yes. Alimu Makonan Wadajine. Yes, definitely. Whose poems are also in, in the, the anthology. Mm -hmm. An amazing poem which we translated together about peeling an onion. Oh, really? And the onion screaming. <laughs> that's really... <laughs> um, you know, because that's what so many poets... Alimu does it as well. Um, Ethiopian poets have this sort of wonderful sense of humour and sense of the absurd. 
in a way a bit like Eastern European uh, literature mm. uh, under communism because they basically had to bite their tongues. Yes, they had yes. to sort of like write indirectly. In Ethiopian culture, in Ethiopian poetry, it's called, uh, it's a big tradition mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. double meaning. Right. Uh, it's called wax and gold. Okay. And the wax is the surface. Yes. And you dig, dig through the wax and there you get the, the sort of the meaning which is either profane, mm -hmm. you know, so it, the poem seems to be about some religious biblical subject, but actually it's a love affair or something going <laughs> okay. on underneath. Or it's to do with politics or, yes, um, yeah. you know, I mean, there's a lot of, you can be locked up. I mean, this is what I was saying about Sagai Gabremedin, not mm. the poet laureate, but another poet called yeah. Sagai Gabremedin. He was locked up, not so much for his poetry, but for his views in general. Yes. And poets and, and writers of any sort, it's journalists. Yeah. I'm not sure whether it's better now. Mm. Um, the government is different. It's not as repressive now. Right. But it's still a place where you have to be careful. And difficult times as well. Yeah. Oh, lots of, but I've perhaps we'll come, on to, yeah, we'll come on yeah. to that, to talk a yeah. little bit about that. But I think in terms of the anthology itself, which is called the... Remind it's called Songs We Learn From Trees. Songs We Learn From Trees. <laughs> so we will put, so we will, uh, where did the title come from? Is that well, the title, actually, this is one of these wonderful sort of African stories because Songs We Learn From Trees is a wonderful poem by a poet called Boketu Seyum, uh, which me and Alimu translated at the time of Parnassus. You know, there was a big poetry festival at the time of the London Olympics, and it was one poet from each country oh, participating right. in the Olympics. And there was a huge, great festival, a uh, week-long festival at the South Bank Centre. Right. Um, in fact, it was Simon Armitage who started it, and, and it was organised by people in the South Bank Centre. It was amazing. So I wanted to get a pamphlet done of poems of Bukitu because he was coming to represent Ethiopia. Right. And one of the poems was Songs We Learned From Trees, which is about the beginnings of Ethiopian church music. There mm -hmm. was a saint called Saint Yared. Mm -hmm. who looked at a tree and there was a caterpillar sort of eating a leaf and this inspired him to write a song about it. And, and it's a lovely poem and a lovely title. I mean, it's, it's not the exact, I mean, it's a translation, but it's a, a very sort of loose translation of, of Bokitu's title, mm -hmm. which doesn't exactly mean this. But I love it as a title um, yes. because it's, it's got that sort of green feeling which Ethiopian poetry has mm -hmm. and it's all to do with music and song and rhythm and, and stuff so I thought trees and songs in the same title wonderful yes. but then Bokitu decided he didn't want to be oh no <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't quite know why but anyway he's not in there but I have mentioned him in okay. the introduction you know wished him well because it's a bit shocking that he didn't want to be in finally he said yes originally and then he changed his mind okay. but in terms of producing this anthology i mean that's amazing both for ethiopian culture yeah, I mean and getting it out to a wider audience yes. uh, sort of in i mean it's english. the first time it's ever been and done for us also english I, speakers to be able to yeah. understand ethiopian culture in a yeah. very different way to the way i mean we've had a huge response yes. and it's sold really well i think and there's been huge response especially in america uh, where the the diaspora uh, overseas Ethiopian community is yes. huge in America yes. um, but it's not only them it's a lot of the poems we've been asked for permission to reprint them in magazines of different universities of writing fellowships and, and stuff like that so it's been really really good mm -hmm. Poetry International right. which is a website there was no Ethiopian poets on the website they are really interested in this so mm -hmm. they've published about eight poets I think okay. on their website so that's, I mean, you're almost yeah. trailblazing. And I'm very it's proud of, of what yes. we've done. The problem is, as Wudala said, you know, I mean, they suffer from a sort of sense of separateness. 
in a way. And that works two ways. They don't really need us. They don't really need the outside world because they've got their own culture. Yeah. Uh, and they're very happy within their own culture. But my feeling is, you know, I mean, eventually they would have done this. You know, an Ethiopian poet would have done this. Yeah, yeah. He would have maybe have had more problems to get it published, but being a, an Englishman doing this slightly, you know, I would have preferred it if it had been an, an all Ethiopian mm -hmm. enterprise. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't going to happen, and Alimu is basically as much a part of it as I was. Oh. And then all of the translators who I mentioned yes, who've yes. helped us, yeah. uh, and the poets themselves. Yeah. And, and in Ethiopia, it's a huge deal for yeah. them. Yeah. We were going to have a huge, uh, in October, sponsored by the Ethiopian Ministry of Culture with well, all the poets and academics. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the biggest question I had was who should be in it? By the time I've translated or read a poet and realized whether I like him or not or her, months have gone past. And yeah, so, you know, yeah. I had to short circuit the selection process in a way. So I was put in touch with a professor of folklore and folk literature and poetry at the Addis Ababa University yeah. and he's been absolute godsend because yeah. he basically said well you have to have this one this one this one this one this one and you know he just listed them down and yeah. I pulled 20 poets yeah principally I've added women to that because one of the problems in Ethiopian poetry as well as in society is that women are very strong but in a sort of unpublished way okay yeah <laughs> you know they're, they're strong in the background yes. they're strong yeah. power behind the throne strong that right. sort of strong right. which means that there are huge numbers of really great women poets but very few who actually hit the publication and perhaps that's changing that's, been, that's perhaps changed. that's been the importance of having you involved because you've gone to Addis Ababa and you've got Ethiopian to actually give their views which is so important and mm -hmm. from an Ethiopian perspective yeah but you've added the perspective that we now look for in in what in the western world i suppose yeah. is, is more integration of women into that so that mm -hmm. you, you, maybe the the marriage of the two thoughts have actually created well, i think I'm, i think i'm just really I, I agree with you but on the other hand i don't because basically women poets are there yes yeah they are very visible but right. they're not readable or they're okay. not as readable yeah, because yeah. They, they don't rush to publication they don't you know i i met poets who said oh uh, let me give you my 13 books of poetry, you know. Because <laughs> everybody in Ethiopia self-publishes. I don't think there's a thing, well, maybe there's one publisher like Karkanet or Faber or whoever. Everybody self-publishes. And they, and they sell thousands of copies. Really? One of the poets in here, his name now, um, is a wonderful, engaging, terribly engaging, raffish sort of, looking at you in well, well you're having a look would you say that poetry is actually more embraced than novels and fiction and uh, i mean is it because it's closer to song that people love it like the ethiopian culture it's more i mean there are novels a lot of novels being written yeah but novels and short stories are a much newer thing they're a sort of supposed 20th century addition to ethiopian literature mm -hmm. before that i mean there were religious texts yeah. There were religious stories, lots of stuff about the Queen of Sheba and things like that, the Kabra Negat, and these sort of big religious texts. But there weren't novels, really. Mm. I mean, novels started, I suppose, in Europe, basically, in the 18th mm. century, mm -hmm. 17th, mm -hmm. 18th century. Yeah. In Ethiopia, they really started in the 20th, right. mid-20th, early to mid-20th century. Um, okay. So, there, uh, whereas poetry has been huge, because and it's a so big similar main, to song? I think because it, yes, because it, it, it's a folk art. 
as well as uh, okay. you know literary poetry yeah. is 20th century as well in Ethiopia. Yeah. The sort of the the idea that you write it down yeah. and that you make a book of it and then distribute it. I mean, the trailblazer in that was really a, a poet called Kebedi Mikhail, who was I think he was minister of what's he minister of education mm-hmm. at one stage under Haile Selassie, and he wrote you know poems of his in there very rhymy type of poetry very yeah. sort of childish morality tales but actually very grown up okay. as well yeah, yeah. and he was very keen on having them published and then uh, distributed in schools and all that sort of stuff so he he was one of the sort of trailblazers of actually writing the poems down and, right. and treating poetry as a written art as well as a, a spoken yeah. art or a sung art and the two main traditions of poetry in Ethiopia one is religious poems mm-hmm. which would have been spoken mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. they're called kemne, mm-hmm. uh, and they're the ones with lots of double meanings okay yeah. um, and then there's asmari poetry sort of minstrel poetry and they, they both concentrate on basically two lines on couplets right, rhyming right. couplets yeah of yeah. 12 syllables each line. wow okay. so they're like alexandrine you know like racine or corneille or moliere all these people wrote in alexandrines which are 12 syllable lines mm-hmm. with a break in the middle so six and six Right. So most Ethiopian folk poems, yeah, yeah. and indeed most Ethiopian poems, full stop, use that sort of 12-syllable line. Yeah, and what yeah. the, the wonderful thing now, of course, is that, or even in the 20th century when there was a lot of experimenting going on, was that they used that as the sort of benchmark. It's a bit like an iambic pentameter, <laughs> you know, in English poetry. You know, people write in, in iambics, mm-hmm. but they also write in contrast. They write against it. Yes. Do you see yeah, what I mean? So yeah. they'll write four and a half deep. Mm. Uh, so in Ethiopian poetry, you know, you think you're in Alexandrines, you think you're in 12-syllable lines, which they call Yuelbid, mm. and then all of a sudden it becomes 11 or right. 13. Okay. And, and, and sort of little, play. so they're playing tricks and, yeah, yeah. and, and just having fun. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and sometimes it's meaningful as well. It's significant and sometimes it doesn't. Okay. You know, okay. so... Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how we got into... Uh, I think you were looking up something <laughs> and I... Oh, that's right, Ephraim Sayum. Ephraim Sayum, this yeah. raffish poet, yeah. he's wonderful. He writes about women and he's always sort of like this sort of figure of a, of a, a sort of raffish young man sort of walking the streets and eyeing up these beautiful women that he sees. And um, his book that all these poems in the anthology come from, I said, oh, so uh, was it successful? He said, oh, I sold 40,000 copies. Oh, my goodness. Which, you know, I mean, it's unheard of for a book of poetry in this country. But in Ethiopia, I mean, yeah, I think he was maybe exaggerating. But, you know, when I ask poets, you know, how many, you know, they regularly say, say, they say 5,000. Wow. Okay. So So they live on it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the books, one of the problems we have had, or not problems because we've solved it, was that this anthology retail price, £18.99. Yeah. And a book in Ethiopia goes for maximum about three quid. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you're selling 5,000 copies at three quid, that's a fortune Exactly, so this, maybe that's a, yes, <laughs> which is what we should all maybe be thinking. You know, less, well, I mean, less is more or what? Yeah, yeah I mean, the, I'm all for books in the West being charged at a nice price so that the publisher will make money, that, that they can give some money to the, mm. to the writer as well. Yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, what Karkanet very generously in a way agreed to do eventually was to sell us a whole load of copies at cost price right because that meant that they could increase the the print run Mm -hmm. which brought their overall 
cost for the remaining copies it brought sure. their cost down a bit yeah i've got 400 copies to take to ethiopia <laughs> when eventually we go wonderful because <laughs> i mean you know we, we're yeah. still hoping yeah. to launch big in, in addis and maybe even in gondar mm-hmm. uh, which is a wonderful um, old city up in the north of ethiopia yeah and we were going to talk about coronavirus and what's yes. been happening yeah. this year yeah and obviously you know i've had two books out this year yes which is incredible which is incredible so i've been really busy with getting them done and getting yeah. them organized and getting them published yeah both of them by Carcanet has been amazing not only in the actual publishing process but also in promoting and launching on zoom and things like that right but before the coronavirus you know, before the lockdown, before it became obvious what was going to happen, I'd organised a big tour of Ethiopian poets around the UK. Oh, wow, that would have been amazing. And I got a, a lovely yeah. grant from the Arts Council as sure. well, which is sitting in my bank account. You know, I mean, I'm, I put so much work into that and I found so much enthusiasm. We are having events uh, in the Poetry Library, in the South Bank Centre, mm-hmm. in the Ethiopian community, in Manchester, in Leeds, in Oxford, in Cambridge. There was a sort of momentum. Yes. You know? And, and that, of course... The brakes were on. Uh, yeah. The brakes were on. We couldn't even get... wouldn't have been possible to get visas. No. For the poets no. coming from Addis. Also, we had three poets, I think, coming from Addis, two from uh, America, mm-hmm. and one from Paris. But, uh, you know, it wouldn't have been possible to get visas anyway. Mm. So that was all... You know, having done all the work and raised the money... Yes, yes. Which, as you know, is not an easy... It's not an easy task. <laughs> so, you know, I was very disappointed about that. And then in July, Tenderfoot, my own new collection, came out. And I'd been anticipating doing, you know, big launch in the pub with yeah. all my poetry friends. And then a big launch, probably, for non-regular poet friends. Yes. But obviously, all that had to go by the wayside as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, Carcanet's been launching books on Zoom. Yeah, so we, yeah. we did a Zoom. Mm-hmm. Do you know Dalgit Nigra? He's a wonderful, um, basically Indian English poet uh, who's won every prize there is. He was poet in residence on Radio 4, and I mean, he's, he's a big name and wonderful, wonderful friend of mine. And he, uh, and he also writes in a very lively, colourful way. Yes, he's yes. not sort of quiet. So he writes in a sort of rather un English way, in a way, mm-hmm. which is. You know, when I'm writing in an Ethiopian voice, that's how I write. Yes, yes. Uh, largely because of because Dalgit opened my eyes to the fact that one could do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that was fact. allowed. Um, <laughs> stupid so he to was say, an influence. For but he was a big influence yeah. on me, and, and he's actually, you know, quoted on the cover as well. He agreed to host the, the Zoom launch, and it, um, it went well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. And I think that's where we're very thankful for Zoom, that it has actually opened, not doors, but opened people's laptops or phones or whatever that we... I mean, it's not, it's not as the same. nice. It's of not the same not. thing at all. No. On the other hand... But it's a taster, isn't it? It's a it's taster. And people can attend these yeah. Zoom yeah. launches or meetings or whatever, wherever they are, mm. mm-hmm. which is, you know, I mean, if you have a physical reading or launch or whatever... It's limiting, isn't it's it? It's limiting. Mm. I mean, it's lovely. Yes, of course. I mean, I don't think a, a Zoom event is... Um, There's a kind of place for both, I think, now that we I people, think it, ha- think, people yeah, have seen be, yeah. what Zoom and other mediums can do to push things further out there into the global world. But we shouldn't forget that the small, intimate events and venues are so important. Or big. Too. And big, yes. Big events. Big and small, yes. You know, I mean, physical events mm, mm. where you're hearing, you're seeing the, yes, the person performing and stuff. 
and I mean it's not only poetry but it's live music it's exactly um, it's literature of all sorts yeah, uh, yeah. theater yes um, that's one of the things I miss the most because in town I go to the theater a lot mm. we also go to a lot of concerts normally mm. and and that's just just basically stopped. stopped. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are still some, you know, you can go to, but it's just not the rich choice. There's choice, no choice. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and there's no, you know, you, you book your tickets and then you think, well, should I really go? Uh, you know, and what's the tube going to be like? Is there, is, is there going to be a lot of people on which makes you uncomfortable? So there's always a sort of a little feeling that you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, and that's very sad, isn't it? So which is sad. And, yeah. and also, if you go into the West End, I mean, it's just deserted. It is. And most of the restaurants are not open, and, and uh, or if they are, they have to shut early mm -hmm, and stuff. So mm -hmm. it it is, yeah. I mean, I think one of your so questions, to which to you told you, me about, yeah. was how do you how you, have you fared in lockdown? Yeah, well, I was going to <laughs> yes. I mean, that, I I wondered in terms of particularly your creativity, how lockdown has influenced you getting things done, like you've got your books out and published, but also how it may have prevented your or, or put a hold on your creativity, or have you found that you're thinking in a different way and therefore becoming creative in a different way. I, I, I know a lot of poets, I mean, a lot of poet friends have found it frustrating but also quite liberating because they've been forced to stay home. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's meant that instead of all the daily trips to the office or whatever they would normally be doing, they are stuck at home and they've used that and they've been very creative in actually writing new... Um, I also know it from Michael Schmidt at Carcanet, who says that the number of submissions for books, yes, uh, but also for, they run a magazine called PN Review, it's mm -hmm. been going for just 50 years. So the submissions have just gone through the roof, mm -hmm. which is really bad mm -hmm. for him because it just, it makes many more hours of sifting mm -hmm. or not bad, but difficult. Well, it becomes more of a challenge, doesn't it's it? It's <laughs> much more challenging, yeah. yeah. Uh, but for me, I mean, this year was always going to be more about practicality. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, getting these books published, getting the final manuscripts worked out, getting them published, and then promoting them, doing events and launching everything. So that's what my whole brain... You were already <laughs> focused on that. Focused yeah. on that. So the first half of the year, by the time Songs was published, things had changed. But I was still in the creative phase of re-editing Tenderfoot, my yes. new collection. Yeah. And actually Tenderfoot changed a lot during the, the final edit, Did which it? went over okay. about a month. Right. So from, well, it should have been just proofreading, mm. but actually it turned into much more of an editing process. Because I'd been working so hard on the anthology, mm -hmm. it took the anthology to be actually published for my mind to be able to go and really engage you've again with my poem, with yeah. my own poems, yes, yes, and to and to see it as a as a book rather than as individual poems, right? And right. so I made a lot of changes, added poems, took poems away. Okay. I mean, I shouldn't have been doing that at that stage, <laughs> but I thought, well, listen, you know, once it's in print, you can't do anything about it. So yes. It's, it it's not been printed yet, so do it now. Yeah, yeah. And so that lasted until July. Okay. That yeah. process, or until the end of June. Can I ask at that point with Tenderfoot? So it's poems that very much reflect your time as a child in Ethiopia. Yeah. And were these poems written when you were in your childhood, or were they written later? And have they now been collated, or some did you write? No, for these now? were all. I mean, yeah. my first book about Ethiopia is called Ethiopia Boy. Yes. Yeah. which was basically me jumping up and down, shouting praise poems that were based on Ethiopian poems. But 
I was just thinking about my, my feelings about Ethiopia and, and what happened to me there and what, uh, you know, the people I knew and, and stuff like that. And one of the things that came into my mind was hunger. Mm -hmm. There had been a big famine, well, a small famine. I call it the small angry famine. Yes. There'd been a small famine. I mean, there was a famine in Ethiopia every 10 years, basically. And people in the mountains, so you'd get people in this village having a famine and people in that village not having a famine because this is on one mountain top and this is on another and there wasn't a road between them. Right. It's a very difficult country yes. to organise food supplies. Very isolated. Very isolated yeah. community. And there had been a, a famine which killed, I found out, about 60,000 people estimated when we were there. Oh, when okay. we were eating all this wonderful Ethiopian food. Really? Including all the people I loved who, who were, apart from my family, were Ethiopian. Mm. I don't really remember my foreign friends. I remember my Ethiopian friends. I remember our servants. I mean, they didn't feel like servants. They were just sort of like a big family, family. in a way. It felt very family-like. You could argue that that's not true. Uh, and that's part of also... There's a, so it's not a sense of guilt, but it's just a sense of... I wanted to be more realistic about my childhood and what yes. was really going on. So I yes. wanted to explore mm -hmm. through my poem what I felt and what was really happening right. and what I felt about what was really happening because I remember knowing yes. what was happening yes. and how did that make me feel and how did it make me feel about my friends. Yes, yes. Um, so as a what child, you see it in a different way to... I mean, you I have was, no control I was listening it. to the radio and this word, I can't remember what the program was, but somebody used this word tenderfoot. And the, and I'll just read you a bit of the blurb. A yeah. tenderfoot is a novice, someone unaccustomed to hardship. Mm. Well, I mean, that's what I was. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. so unaccustomed to hardship, but I, but I wanted to explore, you know, how you can be happy yes. when there are unhappy, that when there are, you know, really uh, poor, but also hungry people around you. How you can sit there, you know, scooping up the injera and the what, and eating and having a wonderful time when you know that there are really hungry people just a few uh, miles away or a few feet away sometimes. Mm. Um, so I wanted to explore that and to basically look at myself and sort of explore what I was feeling and, mm -hmm. and how I feel now about it. Yes, and of yes. course, some people said, oh, you know, but that's a long way away, Chris, isn't it? You know, you, why aren't you writing about here? Why are you always writing about places a long way around? I said, but listen, hunger, especially child hunger, mm -hmm. is not far away. No. Um, I wrote a, a little poem called When the Backyard Was a Boy because I read a, a wonderful series of interviews by James Baldwin, mm -hmm. who I love as a writer. Yes. I actually adore him. This is something he said. This is a note in the back of the book yes. about this poem. My poem was called, uh, it's called When the Backyard Was a Boy. And uh, I say it's prompted by something James Baldwin said in an interview with Studs Terkel in 1961. That's what he said. White people in New York talk about Alabama as though they had no Harlem. To ignore what is happening in their own backyard yes. is a great device on the part of white people. Yeah. And I take the white bit out because I think it's a great device on the part of everybody. Everybody. Uh, you know, so I, I feel in writing about my feelings about being a boy with hunger around me, which is what this book is about, really, about being close to a country and yet not close, being a foreigner. I mean, maybe if you're in France, you can forget you're a foreigner if you speak good French mm. because you look like they do. Yes. But when you're in a country like Japan or in, in uh, Ethiopia, there's no way. You're ever going to forget that you're a foreigner or be allowed to forget you're a foreigner. Yes. And that's nice. You know, there are lots of nice things about being a foreigner, mm -hmm. about being an expatriate. 
you're treated in a, in a much more sort of special way maybe than, than if you were a local. Mm. But it also has its downside because you are distanced. Yes, yeah. and your understanding can only be partial. a part, yeah. Yeah, part yeah. understanding. I mean, you, you understand through your cultural baggage what you bring to it. Yes. Uh, and yet you always know that you're missing a lot of, of what's going on. Yes. Mm. Mm. You know, one of the books I really love, well, two books I really love, which I found when writing, there's a, a, a section here called Outside the Gates with Other Beer, which is actually all, side, all inside the gates because he lives in this lovely big house mm -hmm. with a big garden around it yes. and these lovely big gates. And there was a sort of mud track I've been back and it's now all paved and everything, but at that time it wasn't. Yeah. So in the rainy season it became a mud bath. You know, yeah, but yeah. Um, and I used to spend a lot of time at these gates looking out on the track and there were donkeys and horses and people going past with carts and, and there were lots of little boys running past and we would giggle. And so there was a lot of life going on there and it was life outside the gates. And I don't know if you've heard of Karen McCarthy Wolf. No, I don't. She's a lovely um, she? black English poet. Okay. Um, my, unfortunately, my poetry knowledge is pretty appalling. It's getting better. Anyway, but she it's was still looking at my poems <laughs> yes. and she said, at uh, the manuscript for Tenderfoot, and she yes. said, Chris, this is wonderful, but you need a, a, a section where you show the reader what your life in that compound was like, yeah. in that, you know. Because you're almost in the prison and the freedom is outside the gates, isn't that's it? That's right. So she said, like but you need to show them the luxury. You need to show yeah. them the chandeliers, she said. <laughs> <laughs> she said, write some chandelier poems. So that's what I did with this little section where, yes. um, where I'm looking outside the gates. But also at one stage, uh, there were these donkeys. I mean, there were seven million donkeys. Really? In estimated Ethiopia. in Ethiopia. Wow. I mean, That's it's one of the donkeys. biggest donkey populations in the world. So if you're into donkeys, go to Ethiopia. I love donkeys. <laughs> yes. I love everything about them. I love their humility. I love everything about them. Do they symbolic. treat them well in Ethiopia? Uh, they sometimes don't, but they do now. I mean, I think generally they treat them okay because, I mean, they are so important. Yes. There are, I mean, as I say in the book, there are sort of bellwether of the health of the economy, of the rural economy. Anyway, one of the books I remember reading when I was a boy was Rasselas, Prince of Abyssinia. I think it, or it may be even called The Tale of Rasselas, Prince of Abyssinia, by mm -hmm. Scott Johnson, who actually used to come to this area. Did he? There's a Dr. Oh. Johnson Avenue on Tooting Deck Common. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'll cycle that way. Anyway, he, uh, he wrote Rasselas, which was published, I think, in January 1759. Mm -hmm. And it's all about this young prince who was put on a mountaintop, as they all were at that time, and pampered, given everything that he could ever want. Yes. But yes. he wanted to see what life was really like outside. outside yes. Which again, a couple of months after Rasselas was published, Voltaire published Candide, which is exactly the same yes. story, effectively, yes, yes. Of, a, of a sort of tenderfoot yes, yes. being taken out of his comfort zone and, and shown what's really going on. So yeah. in one of my chandelier <laughs> poems is... Uh, me sitting by the gate being laughed at by these incredulous donkeys who say are you Prince Rasselas living on a mountain in the happy valley are all your wants catered for but still you long to see the miseries of the world and laugh so hard they bray and bray so hard they almost burst <gasps> because basically yeah. the yeah. idea of somebody wealthy or pampered like I was wanting to know what life really like out there yes uh you know what a poor life is like what a hungry life is like what hunger is like it's so ridiculous mm. to ethiopians yes. to to yeah. the people who are suffering yeah of course they yeah. can't imagine why that would somebody would want, want why would why? you want to yeah. you know yeah. you've yeah. got the life that we want yes yeah i mean please be interested but don't 
the idea of being interested in poverty or hunger is just incomprehensible mm. and laughable, mm. ridiculous. So I wanted Tenderfoot to be laughed at. Okay, and he, and and he gets laughed at quite cool. a lot in the book. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, well, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. It's been just great just talking and all the questions I was going to ask you. It doesn't matter because you're answering them anyway, good, which is good. really lovely. But I did have a couple of quick ones which I yes. didn't give to you, no, but good, which I just ahead. wanted to ask you. I'll try to keep the answers short. So, yeah, <laughs> that's fine. So in terms of modern poetry in translation, what has inspired you? Modern poetry in translation? Yeah, I mean, of the 21st century. So um, lots of poets. Japanese poets uh, like Tanikawa, Tanikawa, what's his name? Uh, Miyazaki uh, Kenji, uh, Tanikawa Shuntaro. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the two main Japanese poets, I, I suppose. But I've been, um, wow. Have, have you felt that, that your world itself, because translation is now becoming more and more prevalent, the world of poetry has enlarged hugely because we can understand and read more. And has that changed how you see poetry? Yes, I think poetry is much more global now. And there's a huge upside to that because it means that you, you have access as a poet to the way that other people write. But the flip side of that mm. is that English has taken over. Mm. So basically, the whole approach to translation has become almost industrialized, which I don't particularly like. Target language should always be yours because of that's course. the language you know inside out. Yes. Um, but what tends to happen, especially in poetry now, is that you get so-called bridge translators or literal translators. Mm -hmm. So basically what happens is that they find a, you know, a native speaker who says, well, it means, da -da -da, it means this, literally. This right. is what it means. And then you get a poet, a famous poet, who comes along and turns that literal translation into a an English sounding poem. Okay, so you, so you, you basically but the problem the with that process that, is that the poetic translator, people say I'm translating Chinese poetry. They're not. What they're doing is taking an English translation of a Chinese poem and then making it into their own or into mm, a, an mm. English sounding poem. Mm. And that I don't really like very much because it means that the translator is not directly in touch with the with the poet with the poem or yeah. the poet yeah um you know i think translation is very hard yeah missing because what you're up against is a whole culture in a poem and you're trying to sort of translate that culture into your culture and mm -hmm. it's a very hard process but if you give somebody a literal you've done so much of the heavy lifting already yes and a literal will never get all of the culture into it and i, I imagine also kind of irons out all the nuances of humour and other things that the poet may have put in that if you don't know the poet and you're just doing a literal translation, you don't know it's the culture. lost. And you don't know the culture, it's, it's lost. Totally. I mean, I was talking to, I mean, I won't name names, but I was talking to somebody in, at a reading a few years ago and he said, oh, I'm translating Chinese poetry. And I said, oh, well, do you speak Chinese? No. Um, oh, okay. And, and you've been to China then? No. You've read Chinese literature no you know, right. so yeah. you know i cannot imagine trying to translate ethiopian poetry if i didn't have a deep love and, and knowledge about ethiopian culture and, yeah. and at least some feeling and access yeah the important thing is knowing what you don't know because yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. you know that you know a poem knowing is sitting there yeah the chances as an english person of understanding what an ethiopian writer is writing about without help i defy anybody mm. 
to understand, really understand and identify. Um, you need help. And the problem is that if you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. the known unknowns. Yeah. The unknown, <laughs> unknown unknowns, isn't it? It's Donald Rumsfeld, basically. But, uh, and and that, that sort of idea that, that everything is translatable and easily uh, available and that English is this sort of blanket that has gone mm. over all over mm. the world mm. and, and that everybody communicates in. Well, I suppose if yeah. you just take it in very simple terms, I mean, w when I was working <laughs> in the Balkans and sometimes I would meet with somebody who I couldn't speak Serbian or Croatian or where, wherever I was and they couldn't speak English. So we used Google as the as the literature and, you know, it, and it's laughable what comes yeah. out, yeah. But, but it's also telling of how robotic it can become yeah. and how how the meaning is skewed so ridiculously. Well, people often, that often say, "Oh, it's easy because you just put it into Google," <laughs> and, and I say, but, "Well, okay, yeah. fine. Put it, put this line of poetry into Google, see what comes out." So, what what is the answer? I mean, I, I saw in in China there's this uh, new tool that they have where you you fix it to your ear, and as as people speak, it's it's been translated in your ear. But I, I imagine simultaneous translation. Yes, but I don't know how well the translation is or anything but well, is I think, that a I think feature or what what is the feature for in, in your eyes or well i think with technical translation with technical um or you know diplomatic or i have a friend who's a simultaneous translator in luxembourg for the european Parliament. yes yeah and at that sort of level i think uh, you know it's great it can work because the concepts are relatively simple and mm. and technical and straightforward yeah i think once you come to literature you're talking about a lot of things which are not said a lot of things which are culturally, they're sort of culturally significant or they, they have signals. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you use a particular word rather than another one and that's meaningful. That whole depth can be easily lost. But on the other hand, I should be more optimistic because I think that the spread of English around the world through the internet, really, yes. um, and football, yes, <laughs> yeah, football is, yes. <laughs> has led a lot of people in those countries to be able to access, to broaden their markets. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you're, for example, an Ethiopian poet and you feel like, you know, you'll know more about where you can maybe have your poems published in modern poetry and translation. So at least you know about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's good in, in terms of the overall and also in terms of reading foreign poetry. Yes, it's much better than you can, even if the translation may not be reached yeah. in the perfect way. Yes. At least there is. You, you have access to some sort of approximation Definitely. of a foreign poem. And, and I think that is really well. yeah. important. I mean, yeah. Ted Hughes, you have heard of. Of course, yes. <laughs> he, <laughs> we did. We actually read his poetry. He was the one who, <laughs> who started uh, Modern Poetry and Translation, of the magazine, which is still going yes, strong, yes. Claire Pollard uh, editing it now. Um, he was absolutely convinced you know, to, to allow English poets to have access and read Yes. Eastern European poets and Hebrew poets and poets basically he was mostly interested in Eastern Europe but also the Middle East so to open out the the views of English poets yeah, or yeah. British poets to what was going on elsewhere as well as just America Australia New Zealand places that you know, where the people write in English was going to revolutionize English poetry and get it out of its sort of narrowness yeah and, yeah. and I think he was absolutely right because if you are interested a little bit can you imagine a world where you couldn't read Dostoevsky? I know, you know, I know. Or, or Balzac? Yeah. yeah. But that's what we had in poetry, well, I suppose, before Ted Hughes, really, mm. in, in England anyway. Right. I mean, there, there were a few, you know, there was Ezra Pound with Chinese poetry and stuff yes. like that. 
but there was very little interest here yeah. in poetry from Eastern Europe, from non, there would be interest in Russian poetry, interest in French poetry, Spanish, yeah. but not any of the, the East or the Middle East. Um, so I think, you know, I'm really optimistic about that. I think that's yeah. had a huge impact on British poetry in England. The other thing that it's done is it's, yeah, this is actually even more important in a way for me, is that it's allowed poets like Dalgit Nagra. Who I now must read. <laughs> you must. Look, we have Coming to Dover, which is his first book. And uh, so it's allowed a lot of, how do you say this, poets from a, an immigrant background. Yeah second, third, fourth generation, whatever it is, go back far enough, we're all immigrants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, definitely, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but if you're, for example, like Dalgit, so he's born here, schooled here, fed on English literature, Jane Austen, Longfellow, Browning, you know, yeah, Macefield, T.F. Uh, Eliot, blah, blah, blah. He has to understand where his cultural roots are, and yeah. then it's allowed people of, I suppose, maybe you could say more recent immigrant backgrounds to say, well, where do I come from? And, and what's the poetic traditions and then incorporate them yeah. into, into yeah. their own poems. You just made me think of, I've forgotten his first name, but Crazy Johnson. You know, yeah, Lin Linton Crazy Pasqua, Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. Linton, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, his poetry, I, I first read it and I loved it, but I loved it even more when I saw him mm. performing it because suddenly it just comes alive. I did, unfortunately, um, I didn't see with music, which yes. apparently has done yeah. in the past. It was just, yeah. it was him. Well, you can see on, was, on YouTube and That's and true, things. I should yeah. do that. But it's absolutely He's brilliant, incredible. but John Agard is, is amazing as well. Yeah. Uh, ben Zephaniah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Ethiopian poet. Ah. So wonderful, I've forgotten <laughs> their name. Uh, famous, famous, famous. This is happening to me. More and more these <laughs> days, I forget everybody's. Lem Sise. Oh, Lem Sise. Okay. Yes, Lem right. Sise, whose poems are in, in here. Great. He okay. asked me to be in. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, because he is, of course, 100% ethnically Ethiopian. Yeah. But, uh, but and these here. things are, are almost will become more important with the generations. As, as more people travel, are living in other countries, yeah. and the percentage of their cultural roots diminishes by the generation. Yeah these books will become more and more important. I think that's I think. right, because, you know, it, keeping and understanding who you are and where you've come from is incredibly important to people's mental health, to have a full view of who they are. Mm, mm. And if you're Dalgit, for example, how can you have a full view mm. of who you are unless you are in touch with your own roots? Yeah. I think also, now that more things are being translated and we're hearing almost the other side of the story, and you realise that, well, certainly the way I was schooled, I was schooled in a way which taught us that basically we were the best and now you're realizing that we were, we're far certainly from not it. the best we were far from it and it's interesting because it's for me I, I love it it's just opened my eyes and mm. made me question well, it's so like much. travel isn't it yeah and and what's wonderful is that because you know there's a much broader outlook now that you can travel in your reading much mm. more widely that's wonderful you know, it's slightly sad that because English is so powerful now as, as the sort of world language, we do make less effort mm. to travel in our language uh, and to learn other languages as English-speaking people. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something negative, but uh, the, the big picture, I think, is very positive, you know, in terms of having access to the world. And I think it's also the way you go about it, because if you go to places and just expect people to speak English, that's so disrespectful in the first place. If you can't mm. even say good morning, hello, thank you. It's that olive branch, isn't it? I don't understand the language. 
but this is what I yeah. can I can yeah. say a few words yeah. at least be polite yeah. to you and that opens doors in ways that yeah. if you go in and just get bullshy and speak just loud <laughs> loudly raise your and voice. expect expect them yeah. to understand because you have raised your volume it's ridiculous and actually working abroad for me was a humbling experience because so many spoke French English Spanish Italian yeah. all the Balkan languages so some some people could speak 13 or 14 languages yeah. and he yeah. was me with my schoolgirl French yeah. English a smattering of German and that was yeah. it so I could get the gist but you were the minority and that made me realize how important it is to do the best you can and try and understand and try and learn as, as much as you can and yeah. especially if you're living in a country when I was in, in France I made well a friend I had who never spoke to me in English he only spoke to me in French That's sometimes really he good. would Sometimes <laughs> he would just, sh he would be barking the French words yeah. in my face and I sort of don't understand, but, <laughs> but he would just go furious. But the good thing was I learned so much yeah. from him um, yeah. and then he just laughed. But then Of course, when you're living in a country, you, it, makes you, it, it makes it easier and you, and you have more, you're more naturally going to be in situations where you need the language. Yeah, so. well, it's amazing how many people that I hear of and have met who go to live abroad and don't speak the language yeah, at no, all. I think, well, true. that's such a, it's a waste because you're living in someone else's culture, mm. but you're never really going to understand it. And yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I pick up languages because I have a good ear. Mm. So I pick up languages when I'm there, but I, I find it very difficult picking up a language when I'm not there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, one of your, your questions you later on yes, yes. <laughs> was, would you consider settling? Yes. In Ethiopia, yeah, uh, and the risk of being silly, the answer is yes and no, because <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to live in Ethiopia, but you know, I, I feel that I think the time has passed that mm. I could do that. Isao, yeah, Isao, both of us are not getting younger, obviously. Do you speak Japanese? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, we've been together forty-one years. So, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other thing is that I've become allergic to berbere, which is one of the main ingredients of Ethiopian food. Which, and what is berberi? Berberi is this sort of chili powder. Mm. They take lots of different types of chili and grind them together with cumin and I don't know what else, bishop's weed and lots of different herbs and stuff. And then they leave it to dry in the sun and, and it's very, very, very hot. Do they pound the seed? They pound the seed together with, with the yeah. whole and so this is what I was talking to a little earlier about this, because the seeds of yes. chili are full yeah. of lectins. Yes. If they could only take the seeds out and the skin, you'd be probably be fine. <laughs> but well, it's, it's, grand, it's happened to me. I, in fact, the funny thing was that it started with poetry because I went up to Gondor to see a wonderful poet who's in a book called, um, I'm going to forget his name again. I forget everybody's <laughs> names these days. I really am forgetting people's names. What's I can't name? help. I can't help you ah! out, Chris. I know you can't, but he's a wonderful, wonderful contemporary poet, and he lives in Gondor, and his name is Zodu Milikit. Mm -hmm. Zodu Milikit. Anyway, so I went there. We went around the the castle, Fasilidas King's uh, Emperor Fasilidas's ruined castle. Wonderful. And then he said, "You must come home uh, to you know to have dinner." So we went, and his wife had cooked chicken uh, stew or zoro what. And it was the hottest, spiciest meal I'd ever had in my life. And I went back to the hotel and my stomach was burning all night. Oh. And I felt really, mm, but I didn't explode or anything. Yeah. Anyway, the next time I was in Ethiopia, I went for um, a coffee. And my friend Zelihun was having a go again with what name, Zilla. And he gave me a piece because they do this thing called a gursha. 
which is you know they take a bit of the bread yes. a bit of the, the it's sort of pancakey bread right, right. you know yeah yes are. i do yes and yes. and uh and and then they give you as a sort of sign of affection yes and so you can't say no so i had a bit of it and it was a tiny little bit of bagel in there sauce and i had to be taken to emergency hospital oh my goodness i mean i was just exploding on every you know from every orifice it oh was God. horrendous and and of course it's very dangerous because you get completely de dehydrated and, yeah. and you can die yeah. um so anyway i'm sorry they stuck lots of salts in me and you know blah 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 but it was and i've had it three times since then wow. i mean i had it here because i was uh, i'm a trustee of the well i just stopped but i was trustee of the anglo-ethiopian society and yes. we had our annual lunch yeah. christmas lunch yeah. in january because you know ethiopia is yes yeah yes late. It's, it's yeah. on a different calendar yeah um and again i ordered a the vegetarian meal but there was a there was a sort of fake they love doing this a sort of uh <laughs> look-alike chicken stew right which was made with potatoes and i foolishly had a tiny bit of it thinking well it's you know because normally vegetarian food is not very hot anyway it was oh, no. <laughs> and so i i just didn't have any more yeah but i'd had quite a small amount but that was enough and really? I had to be taken off to hospital oh my goodness collapsed on yeah. oval tube station it was dreadful so i mean coming back to living in ethiopia i'd love to live in ethiopia yes but the healthcare system is not good mm. neither isan nor i are getting younger the other thing of course is homosexuality is illegal it's not prostituted or anything they just don't recognize it mm -hmm. um but the idea of two men living together is a very strange one in ethiopia mm. Mm -hmm. and uh they just don't understand mm. and it can cause problems sometimes yeah yeah i mean when we went there in 2007 we met um a dramatist who's since passed away and he was hounding us like you know okay your partner you say your partner but what is the business that your partner mm. we said no we're, we're life partners we live together i didn't want to say we're lovers mm. and he just didn't get it he wouldn't get it he didn't want to get it mm. and and he was quite aggressive mm. on stage anyway so you know there there is that to sort of think about because yes, it's a very course. religious they're lovely and they know both me and Isan all our friends and they're very there's an awkwardness on their yeah. side that they can't accept or there are gay people in Ethiopia yeah. but they have to be very careful mm. and and there are you know murders and beatings and stuff which are not pleasant mm. um and and I don't feel that at my time of life I want to live in that no, no of course not i don't want to have to hide no you know no. i don't want to have to sort of shilly shally no, you know? no. um and it's also the knock-on effect of potentially who you would be friends with that they might not want to get too friendly with you because then they might be the victim of something i think they will change as they open up but uh, we're going through i mean an ethiopian friend here said to me chris the people you have to watch out for and not the Ethiopians in Ethiopia. They don't know what gay is, and they don't care. Uh, they just don't, don't think it exists in Ethiopia, right. even though it does. Mm. Um, the people that you want to be scared of or be wary cautious of. with, yeah. wary of, are the overseas Ethiopians, because right. they know what it is. Yeah. And it offends their religious sensibilities a lot, mm -hmm. and therefore be careful. Mm. <laughs> but in London, I take it it's well. No, I mean the Ethiopian society and Anglo-Ethiopian yeah, society. Yeah, I mean, is it? We just don't talk about it. Okay. And when I'm with Ethiopian people, we just don't talk about it. Well, you, know, you don't a lot really of our Ethiopian to, friends, <laughs> they know Isau and everything. Yeah. But it's just very difficult to, you know, to reconcile their their belief that the Bible is the truth mm. on everything, mm -hmm. and you know the fact that it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And therefore, something which is essential to me. Yes. As, yes. Uh, 
gainer. Yeah. Um, it's difficult for me sometimes to to reconcile that with what I know are really lovely people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, with all my friends, the younger ones especially, young friends, right here, basically, people have no problem. Young generations have yeah. no problem. I still come across people who, because of the way I speak, because of the way I look, I don't look camp or anything. I don't act in a. You just look like Chris Sackett. I just look like who I am. Yeah. And, and I've always looked like this and I've always talked like this. And so some people think that I am across the old country gent. I am across the old country <laughs> gent in one way, but I'm also <laughs> across the old <laughs> English country gent who is gay, has had a, a Japanese lover, a French mother, father who travelled the world and was very unconventional. You know, I'm, I don't feel true blue. I'm not clubbable. I, I don't know. want to be in their club. Yeah. <laughs> it's a case of keeping certain things at a respectful arm's distance so that you're close enough but not too close yeah. so that you can be the person that you want to be. Well, I don't want and, to be assumed to be... I don't Just want to, one thing. Yeah, I don't yeah. want people to say, well, this is what you are. Yeah, yeah. Or to think this is what you are yeah. without Could knowing who I am. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. Anyway, does that answer your question? I'd love yeah. to live in Ethiopia. There are various places. <laughs> I can tell you, Addis, I would love to live. Yes. Um, because of the culture, the, the nightclubs, folklore restaurants, the just general buzz of it and all the beautiful people that are there. I'd love to live near Lake Tana. Mm -hmm. Is that in the... Uh, lake Tana is the big, big lake up in the mountains. Right. Which is the source the of the Blue North, Nile. Yeah, yes. it's sort of due, I mean, sort of a bit uh, towards the Sudanese border. So it's um, mm -hmm. sort of northwest. So these are all places I should be visiting too. Well, there, there's yeah, a big town on the on the, called Bahadar, yeah. and then you go up from Bahadar up into the mountains, and then you've got Gondar, mm -hmm. which is my I suppose my favourite town in Ethiopia. It's is just it? Yeah. Beautiful. But why is it? Why I don't know. It's just so it? full of it's. It's an ancient capital, mm -hmm. um, and it's got that sort of pride of an ancient capital. But it's a very laid back place. It's got a lovely hotel sitting on a hill outside looking over the, over the city. And it's just got lots of minstrel bars, lots of Asmari beef. Asmari beef means house, right? So Asmari mm -hmm. is minstrel, so minstrel houses. Right. And it's great fun. You know, a minstrel you house being... Well, they're like bars. Like little and, theaters, and so you have, are they? You have the... Um, no, it's just like a bar. Mm -hmm. um, and you drink uh, either beer or dench, this sort of honey, sort of mead. Mm. Um, very powerful stuff that okay. they serve in little flasks and, and then you've got the an asmari or an asmari uh, with his companion um, entertaining you and making up songs making up oh, poems wow. about the, the people in the bar and okay so it's very much oh, almost it's, uh, spontaneous as well yeah it's spontaneous i mean wow. they'll have various things that they that they do all the time but then yeah. they'll make up yeah uh, rhyming couplets which they sing mm -hmm. uh, about the people um and they made one up about his sow about being Chinese. And I said, well, <laughs> Yapan, Yapan, you know. <laughs> so, they made, so they made another one up about Yapan, you know. Um, and, and that's great. And there's just a sort of life to it. And then if you go uh, north of, of uh, Gondor, you get uh, the Simeon Mountains, which are just brilliant. I mean, just beautiful. Mm. And then you go down, you've got Aksum, which was the town of the Queen of Sheba. Right. The capital of yeah. the Queen of Sheba. Well, in legend anyway, yeah, the, yeah. the Queen of Sheba. And then if you go around, you've got more mountains, Geralta, you've got uh, rock churches, you've I got all that. I was going to say, all underground churches, they're all up in the uh, Well, then the in the middle sort of mountains in the north, you've got a place called Lalibela, 
which is a UN Heritage um, just amazing. Mm. It's you know, churches sunk into these, and you go, you go. I mean, you take your shoes off, and there are shoe minders who, yeah. you know, take your shoes from where you entered the sort of tunnels until until you come out the other oh, end. Really? So your shoes are waiting for you. It's just great. And are the tunnels lovely. are they? Mud? No, they're all built in the rock. Oh, so it's all, so you're walking on stone then. You're, you're walking, walking on stone, stone. yeah, and, and various sort of mattings and stuff. Mm. And you go from one church to the other. I mean, I don't think you can go around them all because I think there are eleven. If I remember right, there are 11 churches. Okay. And yeah, Laribella is where, do you know Philip Marsden? Yes. The Chains of Heaven. We stayed in the Jerusalem guest oh, house because okay. Laribella was basically, they built these amazing churches because they were surrounded by Muslims at mm. one stage in the history in the 11th, 12th century. So the, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem mm -hmm. was becoming more and more um, dangerous. So they decided they would build Jerusalem there. Oh really? So that's what they were doing. There's a sort oh of little, uh, a little ravine which is yeah. the with a, an olive tree which is symbolising the Mount of Olives. And, yeah. And basically, they were building Jerusalem in Ethiopia, right. so that they wouldn't have to uh, run the gauntlet. Yeah. Um, on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So just Ethiopian Christians, Ethiopian would, Christians. would just come to this. So, so they would just I mean, the Ethiopian country. Christians used to go off to to Jeru Jerusalem, just like yeah, yeah. you know Muslims would go to Mecca. So they yeah. they, they would go to Jerusalem, but Copying basically Makta, Queen of Sheba, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, who went to visit Solomon. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's part of the whole Solomonic mythology of Ethiopia. Yes. Because they believe that basically the dynasty, you know, which Haile Selassie was the last, mm. um, was started by the Queen of Sheba and, and Solomon yes. um, having a child called Mem Memluk. Um, I mean, it's all. Doubtful, but, but anyway. In terms of the walking routes, are they now pilgrimage routes, like amazing walking routes that, that have been created, or have they largely been forgotten? No, because basically they... Across I mean, Ethiopia. Yeah. Because there must be like a web almost of walking routes to, to this point. Ethiopians walk everywhere, it's yeah. true, especially in the countryside. But they, they have many, many, many churches. Mm. Um, I don't know, frankly, whether they have specific pilgrimages, but they have big churches, mm. Uh, and lots of little ones. And for example, there'll be the Church of Mariam, mm. uh, St. Mary, and there'll be the Church of St. Yared, for example. And so on St. Yared's Day, they will go to that church. And, and because every day of the calendar yeah. is a saint's day yes, in yes. Ethiopia. I mean, you can, yeah, yes, you can basically do no work for your whole <laughs> life because you're, you know, you're, you're, permanently, you're permanently going off, to your saint. Yeah, to, to celebrate <laughs> or your saint's saint. day. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that, that is part of their, their daily life. Yes, in yes. the countryside especially, but also in Addis. Yes, you know, because yes. they will get up at five o'clock in the morning to go to service before they go to work. Mm. And if they have no work, they will spend most of the morning or most of the day mm. hanging around, uh, you know, one or other of the big churches, right, or right. the cathedrals. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to do another quick round of yes. questions. Here. Just, um, what's your favourite Ethiopian dish? I know you now have restrictions. I have restrictions it. now, but I mean, it is Doro Watts, basically. If I can find a sort of mild version of it, a licha, okay, which so is doro is chicken, yes, and what is a stew, so basically spicy, spicy stew. Mm. Uh, but they do have a, a, a softer version of it called a licha, mm -hmm. which is uh, you know made with less hot chilies and stuff. Okay, and that's what I used to try and eat right. when we were just going out with Isam for an Ethiopian meal. Yes, yes. Um, but there's, there's lots of vegetables. There's gomen. There's, there's so there's spinach. There's 
collard greens yes. you know there's all sorts of broccolis not only the the food itself mm. but it's the whole sort of ceremony of sitting down yes uh, of uh, normally on on small chairs mm. and then you know, you're with your friends and you all tear off bits of the ingera and then you it's it's not only about the food it's about sharing yes, the food yes. together yeah, yeah. and there's a that's it's a real that's what I really love about Ethiopian food yeah. and I love, love about Ethiopian culture, that way that they share. Right. And is there somewhere in London where you can eat good, authentic Ethiopian food? There are loads of places. Oh. I mean, there are loads of Ethiopian and Eritrean okay. restaurants. I mean, since I've had the problem with Berbere, we don't really Been very careful. go yeah. very often. There's, and then there's Marathon. Uh, there's quite a lot. Uh, near to King's Cross. Okay, and they're all individual family restaurants. Yeah, they're all they? individual family yeah, restaurants, yeah. and and there's there's many sort of around Camden. There's uh, Marathon, which is near to King's Cross Station. There's Lalibela in Kentish Town. Um, Any around here? There is one. There's a, an Eritrean place in Brixton, which is really good, near Brixton Market, and I've okay. forgotten what the name of it is. Okay, I'll, um, I'll check that out. Yes. I, mean, I, I only know from going to the food market, Truman Brewery around there, yes. and they do that yes. Ethiopian plate, which is like the, the bread is the base, and then they put lots of different things yes, on. That's what, I mean, yeah. that's what which is lovely. you'll have. Yes. You know, it's a, it's yes. a big, uh, on, a, on a basket, mm. on the mesob, yes. and then you go, yes. put a tray with, with the injera. The injera is always round, and then you yes. put all the different sauces and, yeah. and, and stews yeah, yeah. in there. Oh, it's it's just nice. so colourful, so beautiful, yes, and yes. the smell is lovely. <laughs> And if you go to Addis, you go to one of these, what they call folklore restaurants, mm. um, where they do all the different dances from all over the country. Mm. It's amazing. It, yeah, they're just so, I mean, they're jumping, they're pretending to be lions or, or pigeons or, <laughs> you know, whatever they are, you know, and, and they, uh, they throw their heads around or they, they, they have these shoulder dances where they're, you know, they basically dislocate. Really? I can't, I can't do it, but... Uh, it's, it's just incredible. Oh and this is and something that's very popular amongst oh, the Ethiopians as yeah, well. For them. I mean, yes, I mean, every Ethiopian, I mean, you know, <laughs> when people say, oh, folklore oh. restaurants, it makes it sound very touristic. Yes, yes. And there yes. are tourists at, at most of these places. But there are, I mean, the most, most of the audience is always Ethiopian. Right. And you sit there drinking your St. George's beer or something, <laughs> and it's just a wonderful oh, experience. I have for many years wanted to go to Ethiopia, and for some reason it just hasn't happened yet. It's on the list, and slowly yeah. it's got to happen soon, I think, though you've inspired me. <laughs> <laughs> One other question I had for you. So we've talked a little bit about Ted Hughes, and, and I know that you and Izal were shortlisted for the yeah. Ted Hughes Award in celebration or in translation and representation of Basho's narrow road narrow to the road. big north. Oh, yeah, I always get, I <laughs> really to put the narrow and went to the deep. <laughs> I keep wanting to change, switch it around. The narrow so, north yeah. to the deep road. <laughs> the, yes. Yes. the deep road to the narrow north. Yeah. Anyway, the narrow road to the deep north. Yeah. <laughs> and you sold a number of coffees within we the We did, uh, travelling through, yes. yes. And I'm just wondering how that came about, that whole... Yeah, that was an interesting story, actually, because basically Isao gave me a translation of Basho's most famous work. Mm. Uh, we were talking about it, and he said he wasn't really very happy with any of the translations right. of Basho. Yes. Uh, in fact, Had you read it in Japanese as no, well? No, I mean, I, I cannot read or write Japanese. Okay, but you can speak I it. I can speak it. Okay. I just can't read or write it. Right. That's right. funny because it's just that the, the characters are so detailed. My, my aptitude for language tends to be through sound rather than through okay. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the, the Ethiopian characters mm. are much easier than right, the Japanese. Than the Japanese. I mean, Japanese characters, kanji, you can have like 20 yeah. strokes in one character, and they're just yeah. lost. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so in the, the introduction to the translation which you've given me, it, Donald Keane, who was a very famous translator of Japanese literature, he was saying how difficult it is and that basically it's impossible to translate Basho, mm -hmm. uh, to translate this particular work of Basho because it's so elusive right. and so vague. Yeah. And so Isao was saying, well, he's not very happy with any English translation <laughs> of Basho. Um, and that sort of got him thinking that he should be translating visually. Ah, interesting. Okay. And so because he loves the narrow road to deep north, and yeah. so he wanted to, you know, as an artist, he wanted to represent it visually. And then at the same time, he was offered a fellowship in the bronze foundry. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sao had never done bronze. He'd done metalwork. Yeah. He'd been an assistant for a, a sculptor in, in Japan yeah. uh, when he was younger. And, and so he'd, he'd done work with metal and with plastic and stuff. But he'd never forged bronze. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, he was offered this fellowship in the bronze foundry at uh, Chelsea College of Art. Wow. It's an incredible honor. Yes. And he started making all these drawings. Mm -hmm. Painting is two-dimensional. Yeah, <laughs> when you're going to make a sculpture yeah. in bronze, it's obviously three-dimensional. So he was making drawings from every side. So I mean, he's filling up all these, I don't know if I can see any of his sketchbooks here. Mm. Oh, gosh, these, yeah. these sort of books. So he was filling these all up with preparatory sketches for his... To make the bronze. To make the image. bronzes when he started the, yeah. uh, the fellowship at, at Chelsea. And... I was looking at them, I think these are so wonderful, Isao. I mean, it really would be wonderful to have a show of the drawings. Yes, yes. And he hadn't started, at that stage, he hadn't started the fellowship. So uh, I was talking to Mike Sims, who runs the Poetry Cafe in mm -hmm. Covent Garden, the ground floor where the Poetry Society's offices are. Yeah. And, and I said, Mike, you know, because they have art exhibitions in the halls there. And I said, well, could we show Isao's work about Basho? You know, because mm. Basho's probably the most famous Japanese poet who's ever lived. Yeah. And he was thrilled. He said, yeah, yeah, let's see them. He had to approve them. But anyway, he, he saw them. He really liked them. And um, so what we did was rather than cutting the drawings out, because he sound needed the drawings anyway for yeah. Chelsea. Yeah. So instead of cutting them out, we photographed them mm -hmm. very carefully and then made G-clave prints, yes. which you can do quite reasonably. So we were able to offer them framed yeah. for you know, not hundreds of pounds anyway and had this show at, at uh, the Poetry Cafe, which went really, really well. And then we had another show. You did. At Travelling Through. <laughs> and I, I, it through. still is, I mean, it's, it's one of the ones I just loved because of the imagination as well. Yeah. You, feel, you felt that you were walking the road. I mean, I haven't been to Japan. That's also way up the list too yeah. of places to visit. Well, it is a fascinating and, um, place. I don't know if we've got a copy of the book. But the, the funny thing is that, you know, I just, fell in love with Isao's drawings. Yes. And then I said, well, you know, we're having this show at, at the Poetry Cafe. Why don't we do a book to go with it? Yes. And then I thought, well, okay, we can either just have Isao's drawings, but wouldn't it be more interesting to have like a collaboration poems as well, you yes, know, a collaboration. Yes. So that sort of just developed naturally. Yes, yes. So the visuals were there. So you were seeing it through Isao's eyes. And did the poetry just flow because of that? Or did it come through reading the translation of the book that you had? Or yes, it was a collaboration. It felt like a collaboration with Basho as well, because mm -hmm. basically Isao was turning Basho's poems and some of his prose into images 
for the book, we worked on our own translation right, right. of the poem. Yes, okay. Reading all the other translations, but making up our own mind yeah. what we wanted to have. And sometimes then just either including that in the book or just not including it in the book, mm -hmm. but using it as a sort of starting point for me to write something, you know, how we'd been discussing or what we'd been thinking about a particular part of the book. The other thing is that Basho's journey was going to see all these sites which were connected with literature. Yes, yes. So which had been written about yes. by his favourite poets of the past, the travelling poets of the past. And so there are a lot of stories connected. There's, for example, there's a place called the Sesho Seki, which is the killing stone. Mm -hmm. And it's this big sort of sulphurous stone in a, you know, in a, in a very sort of sulphurous area. Mm. Um, and there are lots of dead insects, you know, around <laughs> this big hulking stone. And uh, it's associated with a, a fox demon. Oh, really? Yeah. So, uh, you know, so I had to tell that story. Yes. Basho doesn't have to tell the story. Yes. And he just has to say, I went to the Sesho Seki and it was raining or whatever he says, I can't remember. Mm. But for, uh, for us, mm. we would have to tell that story so that people could know what was in his mind and what was the... Background to it. What was the background and also what was the, you know, to describe the atmosphere yes, that, yes. that he's getting at. There. Yeah. Um, so that was fun. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then because it was a nice big book, we could, you know, could stretch images over two pages and then stretch poems over two pages. And you wrote you know, it in a form of, in a haiku. No, I didn't, I didn't write did, in haiku. I write in... Did you in, think to do yeah, that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, there are haiku in there. Mm. Some translations of Basho and some of my own, but mm. mostly they were just sort of snippets. I wanted to get the impression of haiku rather than be limited by the, the strict number of syllables and lines. Yes. Because basically I forget, I've been it's reading... It's seven, is it? Seven, it's seven... seven, seven uh, five, seven, five, sorry. Five, five seven, five, five, and then the tanko is five, seven, five, seven, seven. Mm. So basically the five, seven, five is the haiku, and, and that's what... I mean, basically, Basho separated it from the, the five lines to make three lines. But I don't know if you've read uh, Jack Kerouac. I have read Have a you bit read of some his. of his uh, haiku? I have not read any of his He haiku. wrote hundreds and hundreds, thousands of haiku. Did he? Some of which are in, in the exact form, but yes. a lot of which are just what he calls American pop. Right. Uh, and they're, you know, they're... they're are they within his books then? And I haven't just not noticed. Or did he write them separately? No, they, they're separate. Yeah, oh, he kept right. lots of <laughs> notebooks. Yes, um, I didn't know that. Because he used to write them all the time, you know, yeah. wherever he was. They were just little thoughts and, mm. and little uh, views or, yeah, little thoughts about what was going on or what he could see or, you know, just some little, which didn't have to be expanded, was mm. just okay sure. on its own as, yes. a little, as a little sort of um, comment. Yes, um, a condensed really thought almost. And very, very relaxed. Yes. You yes. know, so, so and using relaxed language. And, right. Um, normally three lines, but not necessarily in the right number of syllables or anything like that. Just mm -hmm. trying to be short mm. and concise mm -hmm. and glancing and not heavy. Yes. Um, and all that sort of, you know, that, that sort of Japanese aesthetic, rather than being bound by the actual poetic uh, form yeah, yeah. itself yeah. and so I, I wanted to get that over in the book okay, that yeah. sort of glancingness that sort of Japanese aesthetic of, of minimalism mm -hmm, really. Mm -hmm. Did Jack Kerouac 
and his work then influenced you in yeah i mean i was very influenced because i love jack kerouac yeah and also i mean you know, on the road yeah uh yeah. hugely influenced by bashoff mm. he refers to it quite a lot in, even though maybe i make it up because you know once you're talking about roads there's a lot of stuff which is going to be similar but mm. uh i love kerouac and i love basho now i didn't really know basho mm. and that's why it was a journey traveling yeah so basically we did that show in the poetry cafe and then we thought well we've got to do another show and we did a, another show about uh, about the narrow road sketches from the narrow road in oxford yeah in the yeah. glass tank gallery in oh, oxford brook yeah. and then we did another even bigger show at the apc gallery in um deptford mm-hmm. wonderful gallery i haven't been to that one actually, oh it's just amazing mm. And um, that was called Travels in a Paper Coat. Okay. So he Lovely found it a paper coat it. and he actually stripped off naked Did to he? put the coat on and everything. It was just wonderful. It was amazing. Wow. He became Bashoff. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Has he actually walked the road? No. Or He's been to a it? lot of the places because, yes. I mean, he, he was living near Tokyo, in Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, and he sort of went up to the China Sea coast. Yes. Does that, go through, does that go through Hokkaido? No, 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 no. no. It's, just, it's all on Honshu. Okay. Uh, so he went up to where Isao was born. Right. He went up to Akita. Because mm-hmm. there's, um, on the Pacific coast, there's this amazingly beautiful, calm place which many writers have written about. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've forgotten the name of, of course. It's, ah, anyway. Close to... Anyway, it's it's on the it's on the you know if you've got Tokyo there it's sort of up here somewhere. It's over there. <laughs> it's, it's it's sort of east east northeast of Tokyo. Okay. And then you go to the, the other the other side and you've got another beautiful area of pine trees and sea and little coves and everything. And there was a big mountain, a big volcano. Yes. yes. Which um, is now used to work during his school holidays as a guide, as a tour guide oh, on this you? volcano. Oh my goodness. Mount oh. Chokai. Yeah. But Basho says, unlike the other place, which is name I've forgotten, um, he says Mount Chokai and, and Kitagata Bay is a landscape with a troubled mind. And a hundred years later, boom. Yes. And that whole landscape changed because basically the lava, uh, well, basically the land went up. Yes. The yes. lava filled this beautiful you know, lagoon and everything, yes. and all the little bays. And yeah. So now it's rice paddies. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> you know, so the, the change of the landscape. Yes. But anyway, and the point was that Sao did the journey to Tokyo and then the journey to London. Yes. Basho did the opposite. Yes. Sao's been to many of the places on the narrow road, but he hasn't done it as a, a journey on its own. Yes. I'm sure it can't it, be that easy <coughs> either with modernization. That's a, no, there are lots of people a, who've done it. Yeah, you know, um, another person whose name I can't remember. Do you know Leslie, Leslie Downer? Yes. Exactly, yes, Leslie yes, Downer. Yes, exactly. So she did the narrow road. Yes, yes. And wonderful book. Yes. She was very disappointed with Kitagata Bay. Oh, was she? Yeah, and she's like, oh, you know, she writes it off as like, oh, I can't stand this, and goes <laughs> off somewhere else. I was thinking, yes, but that's the point. Mm. That what Basho said about it was mm. really amazing because, yes. and and uh, you it's know, it's a moment in time as well. He isn't went it? out so. with his companion. They went out onto the lagoon there, and in this little boat to go to a famous uh, temple where Isao's been many times yes, you know, yes. during his childhood and uh, describes going to this temple and they, most temples have a viewing room mm-hmm. and you wind up the, the blinds 
Right. And then we've got this amazing view in front of you. Yeah. So the amazing view was the lagoon with the with Mount Chokai. And of course, and, and of which course now that's totally yeah, yeah. changed. I mean, the temple is still there, but you know. You have to imagine the view. <laughs> and if you read the Basho, you can imagine the view. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's the beauty of imagination, isn't it? And books. That and although books it may not be there in reality, you can still imagine. Yeah, you know, you can s discover not only the views, but mm. the history and the stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, because if you travel the narrow road with Basho, you have to have an annotated copy, of course. You have to have the notes at the back. There's lots of stories and there's lots of references to, you know, he, he uses Chinese poetry a lot. Does he? he? Well, because he was, the tradition that he was reviving mm -hmm. was of the traveling priest stroke poet, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, the sage, the traveling sage, which basically started the, the, the big trope in, of, of literature in China. Yes, yes. Um, and it's taken over to Japan and then Basho's favorite poet of the past, so he was a 17th century poet, so his favorite poet for 14th century poetry is Norman Corcoran Scott, <laughs> um, who... Uh, and I can't help you. No. <laughs> <laughs> God, my memory, I mean... If only I was more of a poet, I'd yeah. be able to... <laughs> but anyway, he... I will be know, after he, this. <laughs> he was going, he, his, his journey was going to places that had been written about by many poets, but by this poet specifically as well. So yeah. uh, when you read a, a work like that, yeah. which is travelogue, it's fascinating because it brings in, it's like reading Philip Marsden or, yeah. you know, reading Dalrymple or somebody mm -hmm, because they, mm -hmm. you know, they take you along and they, they tell you You're the stories the and you meet people. Exactly. You meet yeah. lots of wonderful people in Basho. Yes. Um, yeah. and, 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 and you have this wonderful portrait of the poet, of the of the travelling poet, of the yes. writer. Yes. You know, because an insight he, into who he, he is. I mean, he, you know, basically, yeah, it's really interesting because he writes in prose. Mm. He walks in prose. This is the way I think about it. You know, you've got haiku, which are the little poems, and you've got uh, bunsho, which is prose. But the narrow road is written in a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. It's written in prose and haiku. Right. Which is a, a style yeah. called haibun. So it's basically haiku and bunsho. So you get rid of the second syllables and you put them together, you've got haibun. Mm -hmm. And so what he does, he seems to, I, I just suddenly thought this, trying to explain this, to put it in the introduction of the book, what style, what is this style? He walks in prose. Right. And then he describes himself sitting down or yeah, either sitting, stopping his horse. Yes. Uh, or sitting down on a fence or something. And, and seeing this view and saying, and, and I was so moved by this incredible view that I wrote this poem. <laughs> so he's actually enacting yeah, yeah, in yeah. his travelogue the process of the writer. Right. That's fascinating. It's isn't really it? fascinating. It's, it's a really story within a story. Yeah, it's a story. And so you, you end up not only hearing all these other stories, but, yeah. but feeling that you're with this person. You have a really amazing portrait of this little old he thought he was old he was only 40 something yeah traveling it's like a narrator almost yeah yeah but you really have an idea of who this guy is yeah. because yeah. he's scrambling over the rocks and he's crying and he's weep he often weeps mm -hmm. because of the beauty and the sadness and he goes to an old battlefield and and he's weeping to think of the people who died and i mean you really get sucked in it's the best type of travel writing really. yeah for him that was a very and for japan is that a very specific style that was all his own or did others try to 
uh, mimic that. I'm not absolutely sure. I, th I think he invented that, that mixture of poetry and prose. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm right, but I think he did. There's people all over the world writing haibun as mm. well as haiku. Yeah. Haiku is amazing because it is the most practiced form of poetry in the world. Mm. Mm. I mean, there are haiku societies that are for every country on earth. People, yeah. you know, writing and getting together. There's an activity called renga, I think it's renga, mm -hmm. where you sit around and basically somebody starts and then you go either just writing one line each or yeah. writing one haiku and then the next one has to have something to do with that one and you just go okay. on like Fantastic. that. So it can be a communal endeavor. Yeah. But then there are also haibun societies, much less, but there's, you know, there are haibun societies as well and people who you know all over the world mm. who love writing in this sort of hybrid style where you pop a poem in and a haiku is, is really good because it's just like a little thought so it, it can have a sort of lightening effect mm. you mm. know it means that you can yeah you can do different things with your prose because it's in contrast with this yeah with this little this little poem so i shall put in the show notes for the podcast listeners a, a, a link to both Bashar's book but also the the book that you you have created with Uzal uh, I've forgotten what the, the we called it poems from the poem sketches yeah. from the narrow road sketches for, yes it's just great sketches, sketches from, from the narrow road, road. yes but it's on your website as well yes it's on it? my website and there's a book page on my website yeah. and there's also the um we published it at, as uh, Huggy Press Huggy meaning uh, we've got some Huggy it's a plant so it's a flower oh yeah. okay <laughs> how do you spell that H A H A G I Huggy okay. Press. So we've got a little website. I've developed a little website okay. called Huggy Press. Fantastic. Okay. Um, and if anybody wants it, they can just contact us through the website. And the website is Chris Beckett. It's Chris Beckettpoems.com. Because yeah, because yeah. there's another Chris Beckett who is a sci-fi writer. In fact, oh, a well we shall make sure writer. we don't confuse it. <laughs> otherwise, everybody <laughs> will be going, "What's going on?" <laughs> he won a prize, and he's got a Wikipedia page and stuff like that. So. You know, but I thought, well, shall I change my name to something else? And I thought, well, no, life's too short, really. No, I mean, you have to, yes. And also, you've set up another little publishing house called Tam Tamrat, Tamrat Books. Yes, which I mean, Tamrat just meaning miracle, you wrote. Yes, yes. that's right. Yes, it so, means miracle. Okay. And, but it's a very common name. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. In fact, well, Alimu was asked to write a play, mm -hmm. uh, well, write a radio sketch. Yes. For a, a series, there were uh, ten poets of an immigrant background yes. who were asked to do this a couple of years ago, and it was about uh, the Odyssey, bits from the Odyssey to make them into modern poems about migration, basically. Yeah, yeah. And Alimo had no idea, so we collaborated on it, and I basically wrote it, but we rewrote it together, and it was called Tamrat in the Cyclops Cave, because it was all about basically the incident with Polyphemus. You know, the Cyclops. Yes. Um, yeah. Because Alimu grew up in the mountains north of Addis. There's lots of caves in the mountains. And he used to go and play in the caves. Yeah. And he once described Ethiopia as a bit of a cave. You know, Did he? Because basically, sometimes you feel like you're in this sort of confined mm, space. Dark, and that there's somebody at the mouth of the cave and not letting you out. Interesting. So I just thought, well, this is Polyphemus. You know, this is the, the yeah. incident where they have to get out from this clinging they 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 put a, a stake through the the cyclops, well, cyclops eye, eye that's right and he's a the cyclops is a shepherd yes and so he's got all his sheep in the cave at night and rolls a stone over the over them and he knows that the odysseus and his men are there and he's going to eat them basically mm. so they basically they blind him and then they're going drunk blind him and then they get out the next morning when he rolls the the stone back and they cling to the bottom of the sheep mm. And because uh, they're giant sheep, yeah. right? You know, yeah, so yeah. they cling to the yeah. bottom of the sheep and they get out that way. And yeah. 
effectively that's how uh, Alimov escapes from uh, Shetland when she when she leaves mm -hmm. it's very very fast because you know, he was a journalist who was writing all the wrong things right and he was told you know if you don't leave you'll be put in jail so he had to get out this in the early 90s so you know we wrote this little play together mm -hmm. come right in the cyclops cave and right. it's still on on uh, bbc sounds or whatever oh, it's called yeah, yes, it might be on my website i'm not quite yeah. sure anymore yeah. but um it's still there somewhere i think on, on yeah. iplayer or something no actually not but it's and, and it, there's a link to on one of the websites i know okay. and it was great fun to do yes yeah fantastic well Chris, we've talked about so much and there's still so much more to talk about. <laughs> but too much, I think it? it's too much. <laughs> we have to stop. But um, I was just seeing if there's anything that I particularly want to ask you that I haven't done. Or is there anything that you want to say that needs to be said apart from obviously we will make sure all the um, links to your social media because it's mainly website and do you do Instagram yeah. and I Facebook? No, okay, good. But it's fine. Everything's yeah. in one place and that's very easy for And basically my website people. has links to you know, whatever. So, I mean, basically, chrisbeckwithpoems.com is the, the best okay. for me. Yeah. And is there anything else you'd like to add? By the way, the Ethiopian coffee that you <laughs> served me was delicious. It was yeah, lovely, it was wasn't really, it? Really, really lovely. Said, yes, I, I, said, I called it aromatic. You said it was uh, almost fruity. Yes, it's slightly which fruity. Which is lovely, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. very nice. It is. It's, it's very, very beautiful stuff, yeah, Ethiopian yes. coffee. But is there anything else that you would like to no, add? No, that's... That, you think uh, thank you so much no. for... Um, you know, I'm... I'm I'd be quite sad, really, that travelling through is not there anymore because I used to really enjoy Fine. going and browsing, you know, through all the books and then having a, a lovely coffee and cake <laughs> downstairs. It was one of the pleasures yeah. uh, of, of life. Uh, yeah, um, no, I, in some ways, I, I really do miss it. And this podcast is, has been actually almost a link with many who had a connection mm, to travelling through, finding out what you're doing and trying to get the word out in a different way yeah. um, about what you're all doing yeah. um, in a global way and traveling through the spirit lives on and it may well be in a, in a place at some time you think in you the might future. resuscitate it the and, idea or re it reproduce it somewhere the else? idea will be in a very different format and form somewhere in the world but at the moment where that place is i don't know so in the meantime the podcast it could even be online couldn't it it could yes I mean, I suppose the podcast is is a part is, is allowing that. But you're not selling books anymore. I'm not selling books, no. But I'm linking to books that to book the book, sites, to the yeah. book club. The Travel yeah. Through Book Club is still mm. going, but that's the only side. And the bit that I love, which is serving the coffee and making the yeah. cakes and all that side, and Both just great. the community, the the, yeah. the community that was around. The event Lower Marsh was just. But also the, the 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 ability to just sort of go to a shop where there's all these wonderful. What's the other big travel book shop in Covent Garden? Well, Stanford's. Well, actually, Stanford's, but they've moved, haven't they? They have, yes. And so it's they're much smaller. They're a smaller version of themselves. I mean, there's a nice cafe there, mm. but it's Stanford didn't have the same feel as, as traveling through. The lovely thing about traveling through was that the selection of books was so was and so interesting. <laughs> Yeah. Well, no, it was. It was. And there was so much packed into that little space. There was a lot packed in. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you know, go down that little staircase down to this sort of wonderful place where you could just relax. And, yeah. and had lots of nice little meetings down there. Went to lots of events down there, which were really yeah. nice. And also, as you know, organised a couple of events there with your help. So that was nice. Mm. No, I really miss it. But then, you know, life has to move on, doesn't it? It's a, it, was a, it was a moment in time, well, five years, in the, yeah, <laughs> a five-year five span. Yeah. And yes, we'll watch this space and watch see, this what, space. see what yes, comes. Definitely. But um, in the meantime, thank you so much. It's really well, thank been you for having me, such uh, fun Emily. chatting thank to you. Thank you for coming 
on your trusty bike on my bicycle. all the way down Yes, here. yes, I hopefully it's stopped raining now, so <laughs> I won't get wet on the way home. And to all the podcast listeners out there, please have a look at Chris Beckett's website and we will put links to a number of the things that he's spoken about and also to Isao, his partner's artwork as well. Right. We'll do a, a collaboration of two, if that's all right with you, Chris. That's but absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Yes, please. And yes, until next time, please subscribe, please share, please let people know that this podcast exists. And we'll be back next week with another podcast. But for now, take care and thanks for listening.